Today what I'd like to do is look at Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, Hebrews 8 is actually is, is, is a beautiful chapter. Half of it consists of just a quotation from the book of Jeremiah. And a very famous section, of course, the section of the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31. So today, interestingly enough, half of what we'll be looking at is are the words of the author of Hebrews. Half of what we're looking at uh, is just a quotation of uh, the New Covenant passage in Jeremiah chapter 31. But a reminder uh, that when we get to chapter 8, we are just continuing on in many ways following the author's train of thought. He's been talking about how Christ is the high priest that we need. I mean, even earlier, uh, the end of chapter 5 and chapter 6, he talks about the necessity of clinging and holding fast to Jesus. Then he talks about how God is faithful, uh, God is holding on to us, and we have hope that's secure because of the finished work of Christ on our behalf as high priests and a sacrifice in the most holy place, providing purification for sin and forgiveness. Then the question was, well, how can Jesus do this for us if, in fact, uh, he's descended from Judah? How could he be a king and a high priest when in the Old Covenant system that would have been impossible to be both? And as we looked at, the author works through Genesis 14, Psalm 110. He thinks about this theologically, and he says, Psalm 110 prophesies that there will be another figure like Melchizedek who is both a king and a priest. And that's exactly what we have with Jesus, the king and the priest, perfect sacrifice, perfect high priest. He saves completely, he saves forever. He's holy, blameless, exalted above the heavens. He meets our need, he's the only one we need, and he is our priest forever, the son of God. He has a, he's the mediator of a covenant that has better promises than the old covenant. And so now in chapter 8, the author of Hebrews is going to start to apply the lessons of Christ as our high priest, the change in law, the change in covenant. What does that look like? It begins this way. Hebrews chapter 8, we're going to read the entire chapter, verses 1 through 13. I'd encourage you uh, to get your Bible and to follow along. This is the word of God. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. 
But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. So after uh, the discussion in chapter 7, in an extended way, about Melchizedek and Christ, uh, the author begins chapter 8 by saying, Now this is the main point of what we're saying. <laughs> this is what you really need to know. We absolutely need a high priest who's perfect. We need a high priest who provides a sacrifice for sin that actually atones for sin. We need a king priest in the order of Melchizedek who's holy and blameless and meets our needs. And we do have such a high priest! who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. In other words, the high priest we have is the high priest who is reigning at God's right hand. He has finished his work, and he sits established in glory. He's the Son of God from Hebrews chapter 1, where we're told about how transcendent he is over all things, over the angels, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not by a human being. In other words, the, the whole, most holy place in Israel, or in the tabernacle, was only the most holy place because of the manifest presence of God there. Heaven, the throne room of God, is the, where the manifest presence of God is revealed most clearly. Christ is the high priest in the very epitome of the place where God manifests his presence. In the real sanctuary, the real most holy place, in the very presence of Almighty God, in full revealed splendor and awesome glory, in the full revelation, unshielded of the glory and holiness of God, Jesus Christ is the high priest there. The true sanctuary, true because it's not a pattern. The, the earthly tabernacle, you, you, you read through Genesis, and there's these, these or, sorry, Exodus rather, and there are these meticulous instructions. Make sure you build it just this way. And, and the reason for that, as we'll see later, uh, is because there actually were all kinds of prophetic symbols in that tabernacle. It had to be just so. You, you couldn't freelance in the tabernacle. You couldn't. You had to do it exactly the way God wanted it done because the whole thing is actually designed with, with prophetic, biblical, theological import. It's, it's teaching you lessons uh, 
Lord willing, we'll see this in, in, a, in a few weeks. Uh, in that way, it's like a good church architecture from the, from the medieval times. You know, Gothic cathedrals. Architecture mattered in terms of how we actually teach people about God. Uh, the, the art in churches, the stained glass windows, all of that mattered. All of those were designed not just for decoration, but to actually teach you theological principles and truths. And it's wonderful uh, that those theological and, and biblical truths could be mediated through an, through an aesthetically pleasing way. But the aesthetics were not the main point. The main point was to have more of the glory and truth of God revealed in every type of form. The Lord created the heavens and the earth. Moses gave instructions and, and the craftsmen built the tabernacle. So it was a pattern. It was a, it was a shadow of the reality. Just like all of the priests who served there and all the sacrifices offered there were shadows of the reality that is found in Jesus Christ. Now, every high priest, we're told in verse 3, is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. In other words, one of the jobs of priests is to present offerings on behalf of the people to God. In the Old Covenant era, it's so different from what we do today. But in the Old Covenant era, you, you would bring your sacrifice or offering to the tabernacle, the priest would take it, and the priest would offer it to God on your behalf. Christ, to be a priest, needs to offer something to God on our behalf. And of course, what he offers isn't something we bring to him. What he offers is he offers himself in our place. If he were on earth, we're told he would not be a priest. And this is actually something which is interesting it's just, just sort of obviously true um, of all the things Jesus did when he was on earth besides cleansing the temple and answering the questions of people in the temple he just he just doesn't do anything in the temple you, you never see him go into the temple to try to serve as a priest. You just never see that. You, you never see him offering offerings or sacrifices in the temple during his earthly life. He never goes into the most holy place during his earthly life. He, he just doesn't do that in the temple. He doesn't function as an earthly priest. And the reason was that whole system was designed, of course, uh, with an imperfect law, but also it was uh, in, the, the priests who operated that system were from Levi, and Christ wasn't. So you don't see him operating as a Levitical priest in the temple. But what he's doing is he's always operating as the great high priest in the true temple, in the true tabernacle, in the true sanctuary, in the presence of God. Which is why... When he dies on the cross, even though you know, he never goes into the most holy place physically in the temple, that curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. That is, Christ's death outside of the temple opens up the presence of God in the temple. Because he is a greater priest than those who serve there. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. 
This is why Moses was warned when he's about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. It's not just that God is micromanaging. It's not that God's a control freak. It's that, again, there are prophetic, typological significances to all kinds of details. In fact, we're told, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the new covenant is to the old one because the new covenant is established on better promises. So we have a better priest, better promises, better covenant, better ministry. So the question is, uh, what are these better promises? We have, the new covenant has better promises. Well, there were promises in the old covenant too. Some of them were really great. So what are the better promises that are ours in the new covenant? Well, first, Hebrews says, the author says, for if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said. In other words, there was a great problem with the old covenant. And that great problem with the old covenant was the people with whom that covenant was made. God found fault with the people. That whole Old Covenant system could never ultimately work because, of the, because the people who were a part of it were defective. The people who were, part of, who were a part of it could never live up to the obligations of the covenant. They could never perfectly fulfill the covenant stipulations. They couldn't. They were sinful. And so that covenant could never make anyone perfect. That covenant could not actually make people right with God. And so if people were going to be made right with God... God would have to change the covenant terms. He'd have to set aside the old covenant and establish a new one. He found fault with the people and said. And what's fascinating now is, uh, you think, look at chapter 7, and then you know, parts of chapter 5, chapter 6. The author gives a long exposition of Melchizedek from Genesis 14 and Psalm 110, verse 4. Here, he gives a long quotation from Jeremiah, but makes hardly any comments about it whatsoever. It's almost as if this is a standalone quotation that you're supposed to be able to understand perfectly well on your own. You know, it's supposed to be pretty clear. Go through Hebrews, actually, the first seven chapters. Look at all of the verses he quotes and all of the comments he makes. Look at the argument in chapter 4 about Sabbath and rest and all of the rest. So, so look, at, uh, look at all the verses he quotes and the exposition he gives of them. Here there's, there's no exposition. It's just quotation. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. Now one of the things that should be very obvious is that in Jeremiah God is speaking to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But the new covenant is inaugurated by the blood of Christ. He's, he says that explicitly. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Here, this new covenant passage is clearly applied to the church. And so this language of Israel and Judah and the new covenant could not be more transparently applied to the church of God. It just is, or else this entire section is utterly irrelevant. I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of God. That is the totality of God's people. It will not 
be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. That is, the first mark, this is actually very important, the first mark of New Covenant and Old Covenant is one of discontinuity. They are not the same. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. So you have this reminder here of redemption. Uh, I made a covenant with your ancestors. I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. This covenant's not going to be like that one. Now remember, I redeemed them. I brought them out of Egypt in redemptive power and I made a covenant with them. But this covenant's not going to be like that. Why? Because even though I brought them out of Egypt, even though they had Passover, even though they saw the miracles, they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. So the hint here, of course, what God is hinting at is the new covenant is not going to be like the old one because in the old covenant I liberated people from slavery and they broke the covenant and I turned away from them. This covenant isn't going to be one where the people turn away from God and where God turns away from them. This covenant is not going to be one where the people are unfaithful to God and he ends up turning away. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. This is one of those, this is one of the first of those better promises or greater promises that are ours. It's the interiority of the law on our minds and hearts. See, the old covenant law was symbolized, really, by being engraved on tablets of stone. They were outside of people. They were external. And yes, you could obey them, but you could also read them and disobey them. The law was outside. You could be perfectly familiar with the covenant law, but it didn't affect your heart. In the same way, that I mean, you know, down in the States, every once in a while there are legal disputes about whether or not you should have the Ten Commandments displayed outside of public courthouses and things like that. Well, legal wrangling aside, I mean, the reality is you can have Ten Commandments displayed outside of courthouses and inside of courtrooms. Having these Ten Commandments, having any part of God's revelation externally displayed doesn't change the heart. The old covenant people who turned away from God had God's law, but it was outside of them. In the new covenant, that's not the case. In the new covenant, God's law isn't engraved on tablets of stone. It's engraved on your heart. It's engraved in the deepest part of who you are. It's engraved in your mind. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now this may be the greatest promise and blessing of all. I will be their God and they will be my people. And what else could you want than to have God as your God and to be identified as part of his people? In fact, in Revelation 21, uh, verses 1 through 4, we read this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. This is the messianic feast. This is the wedding feast. This is the consummation of all things. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, 
God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. See, in this, this one little paragraph in Revelation, we're being given this, this breathtaking, you know, whirlwind clip through uh, vision about all that God is doing, all the blessings sort of symbolized and summarized so quickly. The great one is this. The reason there's no more death or pain or sorrow or suffering, the reason there's a new heaven and a new earth, the reason there's a messianic wedding feast is because God has declared that he is your God and you are his people. That, that's why all these blessings in, at the end of Revelation can exist. That's why there's consummation. God has chosen. He will be our God. We will be his people. There is no greater blessing than that. And in a very real sense, all of the blessings of eternity flow from that decision. God declares himself to be our God. He declares us to be his people. And the way that that can function is because of the high priestly work of the Son of God in the order of Melchizedek, taking care of our sin. So because of that, verse 11, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. What you're being told here is that there is no evangelism in the New Covenant community. By definition, if someone is part of the New Covenant community, they do not need to be taught to know the Lord. Now, Granted, we all need to be taught to know the Lord better. We all need teaching. The New Testament makes that very clear. We need to be taught. But no one in the New Covenant community needs to be taught to know the Lord. That is, they already have this basic relationship with God. Someone, by definition, is not part of the New Covenant community if they don't know who God is. If they don't know the Lord, they are not part of the New Covenant. This is very clear. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord. Why? Because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, oldest to youngest, every member of the New Covenant community has a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. They all know the Lord. If you have to teach someone of any age to know the Lord, it's because they're not part of the New Covenant community. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. The reason that you don't need to teach people to know the Lord, the reason that they all know me from the least, from the least to the greatest, is because four, all of them, have had their wickedness forgiven. Their sins are never brought to God's mind in terms of punishment or wrath or judgment. Everyone in the New Covenant community has their sins forgiven. Forgiven. Oh, these are better promises for sure. I mean, you see, this is where you start to see the, the, some of the differences, the discontinuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, God's law was external. In the New Covenant, it's internal. In the Old Covenant, there were a number of people who were part of the Old Covenant community but who didn't know the Lord, who rebelled against God, who rejected Him entirely. Uh, there were a lot of people in the Old Covenant community who did pay the penalty for their sins, who were not forgiven for their sins. In the New Covenant community, there is no one 
like that. The Old Covenant was a national covenant with Israel. It was theocratic. Uh, it was something that you were born into, which is why the sign of the covenant was circumcision, applied only to males, of course, uh, but the sign of the, uh, of the covenant was circumcision, and it was applied to infants because you were born into that covenant. But the New Covenant isn't like that. The New Covenant is a covenant where everyone knows the Lord, where all, everyone has had their sins forgiven. The New Covenant is not national. It's not theocratic. The New Covenant is transnational. It's translinguistic. It, it, it transcends political boundaries. It, it transcends sort of geopolitical borders. It, it, it transcends all the, all the different demographics that, that we like to, to establish, all those sort of sociological markers and divisions. The New Covenant community transcends all of those things. The New Covenant community is embedded in nations all around the world. And, in, and every single member of it knows the Lord and has had their sins forgiven. You are not born into the New Covenant. You are born again into the New Covenant covenant. These are better promises by far than anything in the old covenant order. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Verse 13 is actually very, very strong language. Like, look, that whole old covenant system, not just parts of the law, but the entire old covenant system as a covenant package, that is done. That has been set aside. In fact, the language talks about you can almost translate it. Is, you know, it, it's been marked for destruction. It's being destroyed. Now, it's being destroyed and set aside because it was imperfect, but also because it's been fulfilled now by Jesus Christ. It, it does not have the function in terms of relationship with God and his people that it did even in those centuries past, as imperfect as it was. It has been set aside because Jesus Christ has brought, brought it to a place of fulfillment, a higher place. The fact that Jeremiah 31, in the middle of the Old Covenant era, talks about the New Covenant that's coming means that actually the Old Covenant itself recognized that it was temporary. The Old Covenant itself recognized that one day it was slated to be set aside. Jeremiah prophesies as an old covenant prophet the reality that a new covenant is coming, at which point this old covenant won't operate just the way that it does, uh, it, it did in his day. Today, uh, we're familiar, sadly, with principled obsolescence. That is, you know, tech companies will design devices that will last for a certain period of time and then stop being compatible with everything else, you know, that's sort of going on in terms of other tech. So, so the design is intentionally temporary. Why? Because if people actually ever just said, well, you know, my iPhone 8 is just, that's just good enough. I don't need an iPhone 20 or whatever it is that they have these days. I'll just be content. If people built products that lasted 
and people were content with the products they had, then all of a sudden you wouldn't have the kind of businesses you know, that, that are raking all this money. So, so some companies, will they intentionally design their products to last for a certain period of time, or even if they'll last longer, they design other technologies that make interface impossible. So it's planned obsolescence. They plan for your technology to be unusable in the future, so you have to buy more. It's a brilliant business plan if you have the monopoly. And if, especially if consumers, uh, well, go along for the ride uh, in terms of consumerism. So we're used to planned built-in obsolescence. The Old Covenant had that. God built into the Old Covenant a planned obsolescence. But what he gave in the New Covenant was infinitely greater, and it was free to us. Didn't, didn't ruin our environment with battery waste. Uh, it did, didn't cater to our greed and our vanity. He gave us something infinitely better because he gave us Christ. Christ is the heart of the New Covenant. He's our New Covenant High Priest. He's our New Covenant King. He's our New Covenant Mediator. All of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for you. And so whatever promises we have, whatever glory is ours, is ours through Jesus Christ, the guarantor and mediator of this better covenant. Well, may God help us. May God help us to be genuinely thankful and grateful uh, to him for these promises and to his son for fulfilling them. Father, we do thank you in Jesus' name for this rich gift of this new covenant, completely undeserved and yet ours. Help us to never take our membership in the new covenant community for granted and help us by the Spirit to win others to it because inside of the new covenant community, we don't need to teach people to know you, but there are many outside of that covenant community who don't know you. Equip us with opportunity and with the Spirit and with words to share the gospel. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. May the Lord bless you.